from Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world. It's the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. On this episode, we're going to visit yet another orphan film, a movie that represents the sole theatrical release from its distributor. Today, we'll be talking about Chattanooga Choo Choo, based on the Oscar-nominated song of the same title from the 1941 movie Sun Valley Serenade. But as always, before we get to the movie, we need to go back a little further in time. In 1976, a gentleman named Phil Borak, who owned a service company called Tri-State Theater Services, which booked films for independent theater owners in the Midwest, decided that he wanted to be a film producer, and he decided his first movie needed to be based on Harper Valley PTA, a song that had scandalized some parts of America in 1968, with its lyrics about a single mom who stands up to her daughter's school's parent-teacher association for taking their frustrations about mom's unique lifestyle out on the daughter. He would start April Fool's Productions to get the $1 million film made. After the film's completion, Borak couldn't find a distributor willing to release the film, so he would add a distribution company to his production company to get it into theaters. The Harper Valley PTA movie would be released on May 23, 1978, featuring I Dream of Jeannie's Barbara Eden as the mom, and it was a hit in theaters, earning $25 million during its nine-month run in theaters. After the film finished its rounds around the country, Borak would shut down the distribution side of the operation, and soon thereafter, the production side as well, once the television series adaptation of the movie finished its 30-episode run in 1982. But soon thereafter, Borak decided to try and make another movie, based on another song. Chattanooga Choo Choo was a big band swing tune recorded by Glenn Miller and his orchestra, which told the story of a young man on a train from New York City bound for Chattanooga, Tennessee, where the love of his life is waiting for him to arrive so they can settle down together. The song would be the first single ever to be awarded a gold record from the Recording Industry Association of America and had been the number one song in the nation when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. The song had been covered by hundreds of artists over the years from Cab Calloway and the Andrews Sisters to Harry Connick Jr. and the Muppets. Not together, those last two. Harry Connick Jr. did a version and the Muppets did a separate version. Mel Brooks would even borrow a passage from the song to use as a joke in Young Frankenstein. Pardon me, boy. Is this the Transylvania Station? But rather than reopen April Fool's Productions, he would start a new company, April Fool's Production 2, to get Chattanooga Choo Choo made. Borak would hire Bruce Bilson, a second-generation director who had won an Emmy, for directing an episode of Get Smart in 1968 to direct the film. Side note, Bruce Bilson is the father of Danny Bilson, the co-creator of the 1990 TV version of The Flash and co-writer of The Rocketeer and the grandfather of actress Rachel Bilson. Borak would hire a first-time screenwriter, Stephen Phillips Smith, to adapt the song into a screenplay, but when Smith's first effort wasn't up to snuff, Borak would bring in a new writer, Robert Mundy, the co-writer of the 1979 sci-fi horror film The Visitor, to make more sense of it all. Mundy's draft would have almost nothing to do with the story of the song, outside of a train that needed to get from New York City to Chattanooga. No, that would be too simple. 
Now we have Alonzo, whose entire life has been the ownership of the Chattanooga Choo Choo Railway. Alonzo is about to celebrate his 75th birthday with his family, which includes his daughter Estelle, her husband Bert, their daughter Jenny, and Jenny's fiancé Paul, as well as many of the staff of the train. Bert is late to the party because he's been fooling around with his mistress Maggie, who he plans on marrying once he divorces Estelle. Alonzo dies shortly after the party and leaves $5 million in the will for his granddaughter and his property and company to his daughter. To teach Bert a lesson, Alonzo's will specifies Bert will get $1 million only if he can get the Chattanooga Choo Choo, which is not operated in years, to bring Alonzo's body, which has been buried in one of the train's boxcars, from New York City to Chattanooga within 24 hours, adhering to the train's historic timetable. And there's a ton of subplots involving football teams, bikers, a Memphis con man posing as a count, peepholes, a half-blind train fireman and a half-deaf train engineer, racist slurs, biker cliches, and a bunch of other things that are so silly, they can only be seen to be believed. Barbara Eden is back, this time as Bert's mistress, along with George Kennedy as Bert, Little House on the Prairie's Melissa Sue Anderson as Jenny, Christopher McDonald as Jenny's fiancé, Clue Gulliger as Jenny's fiancé's father, and because football is involved, Joe Namath. Like any good producer, Borak did not spend much of his own money producing the film. While $2 million of the $4.5 million budget would come from loans and deferrals, the remaining $2.5 million would come through a stock IPO in the film. Once the film was fully funded, the movie would begin two weeks of shooting on October 24, 1983 in Sacramento, standing in for several eastern and southeastern cities, before moving to five weeks of shooting at the Raleigh Studios in Hollywood across the street from the Paramount's famous studio lot. Post-production would continue through the end of February 1984, so the film could be screened for potential distributors in early March, as Los Angeles would be the focus of the film world at that time for the annual American film market. Borak himself would not be participating in the AEFM, but he would try to piggyback on the market to hopefully snag a release partner. It didn't work. Much like Harper Valley PTA six years earlier, no distributor bit, and Borak needed to create his own distribution company to get the film out in theaters. And once again, he called that distribution company April Fools, although it was technically April Fools Productions 2. Borak wanted to release the film on May 23rd, the same date he released Harper Valley PTA but that date was already taken by the first expected blockbuster of the 1984 summer movie season, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So Borak decided on a different date, May 25th. It was definitely a calculated risk, but if there's one thing we have seen time and time again in the movie distribution game is that the market can and will expand as needed if there are multiple movies out at the same time that audiences want to see. We saw it in the summer of 2023 when Barbie and Oppenheimer both opened to huge business the same weekend. And we saw it just two weeks after the release of Temple of Doom when Ghostbusters and Gremlins both opened to big box office, with Temple of Doom coming less than half a million short from beating Gremlins for second place. And there's a valid argument for counter-programming. When a company deliberately releases a movie that is the polar opposite of the big blockbuster coming out that week, 
in the hopes of luring those not interested in seeing that movie to see their movie, or hoping some people who didn't want to wait another hour or two to see the sold-out blockbuster and just buy a ticket for this movie that's about to start. DreamWorks did this to some effect in May 1999, when they released the romantic comedy The Love Letter the same weekend as The Phantom Menace, and ended up having the third-best per-screen average of the top ten films that weekend. We also saw that happen in the same June weekend in 1984, when Orion Pictures released the urban dance drama Beat Street against Ghostbusters and Gremlins, opening in fifth place with more than $5.2 million in ticket sales that weekend. Phil Borak would even say as much when he was interviewed by the movie industry trade publication Variety in early April 1984, when he noted that every other distributor was scared to release a film against Temple of Doom. And as a family movie, he said, the longer he waited to release during the summer, there'd be more competition in the number of studio releases in the market, and he was correct. The week after Paramount released Temple of Doom, Paramount released the third Star Trek movie, The Search for Spock. A week later came Ghostbusters and Gremlins. Then there'd be The Karate Kid, Top Secret, Cannonball Run 2, Conan the Destroyer, Bachelor Party, The Last Starfighter, The Muppets Take Manhattan, The NeverEnding Story, Purple Rain, Red Dawn, Tightrope, Revenge of the Nerds. Practically every weekend in June, July, and August, there were two or more new studio films in theaters. It definitely got crowded that summer, taking the crown of the busiest summer season ever from 1982 when all was said and done. In fact, Borak had a pretty good plan. Release the film in about 750 theaters nationwide, keep advertising spending down by utilizing only local television ad spends, use co-op newspaper ads with local exhibitors, and avoid the most expensive markets to advertise in, the Northeast Corridor representing Boston, Cleveland, New York City, Philly, and Pittsburgh. That is, until the film could show its strengths in markets like Chicago and Los Angeles. Despite opening in nearly 600 theaters in more than two-thirds of the country, April Fool didn't release grosses for the film. Regular listeners know it isn't necessarily strange for an independent distributor in the 1980s, but for a company that wanted to show how well their film was doing so that they could open in some of the bigger markets, it was a bizarre non-move. So, lacking any official numbers, we turn to our reliable backup, the Variety Top 50 which tracked approximately 1,800 to 2,000 theaters in 17 to 20 major and medium metropolitan areas each week. And on the top 50 list for its opening weekend, Chattanooga Choo Choo found itself in 17th place with $157,600 from 82 theaters. For comparison's sake, Temple of Doom was at the top of the variety top 50 list with $11.75 million from 282 sample theaters versus its national gross of $45.7 million from 1,687 theaters. In its second weekend, still no official numbers from April Fool's, but the variety charts show the film falling to 26th place with $45,909 from 47 theaters. And by week three, it'd be off the charts. Its final numbers, $219,000. $272. And the film would never open in Boston or New York or any of those cities in the Northeast Corridor. It also didn't help the film that the week before Chattanooga Choo Choo opened in theaters, Warner Brothers released Finders Keepers, another train-based comedy with an almost identical ad campaign. Like many of the non-studio films of the era, 
The last time the movie would be readily available for public consumption is its VHS release and some cable screenings in the mid-1980s. As of November 2023, the film has never been released on DVD or Blu-ray and has never been available on any streaming service. The only way to see the film today is a poorly formatted rip of the 1985 Thorn EMI VHS tape available on YouTube. The film is not very good regardless of that formatting on YouTube, with the one interesting thing happening at the end of the movie when, during a wedding scene, Joe Namath uses his actual Super Bowl III championship ring to betroth himself to his bride. Other than that, there's a lot of silly slapstick stuff that you've already seen a hundred times before in a hundred better movies. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again soon. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com, for extra materials about Chattanooga Choo Choo. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Good night.